let's uh, discuss the holiday of all holidays, the source of all the other holidays, the ultimate holiday, the holiday of Shavuos, giving of the Torah, the day that changed the world forever. So the Talmud says, in Tractate Shabbos, the Talmud discusses at great length the holiday of Shavuos. The Talmud says that Galilean expounded the following, said that blessed Hashem, blesses Hashem, blesses the merciful one who gave a Torah that's divided into three parts, the Torah, the writings, I mean the Torah, the prophets and the writings, Tanakh, Torah and the Vim to a nation that's divided into three parts. The Jewish people are divided into Kohanim, Levim, Yisraelim. And the Torah was given by a third, by Moshe, who was the third child. Miriam was the oldest. Then came Aaron, who were three years apart. Then came Moshe, the youngest. Moshe was also from the tribe of Levi, who was the third tribe, Reuven, Shimon, Levi. And it was given on the third day from separation. Moshe told them to separate from their wives on the third day. That's when they got the Torah. And it was given on the third month. First Hebrew month is Nisan, Er Sivan. This is, this is what Talmud says. Okay, very interesting. So we know that Torah has to do... The giving of the Torah has to do with three. Consistent. Three, three, everything is... What does this mean? Why is this a big deal? What's so special about the number three? If anything, the ultimate number in Judaism is... Number one. Hashem Echad, God is one. You know, the Jewish child, <laughs> the Jewish baby once asked, the three-year-old in preschool once asked his mother, he says, when is God turning to? Because <laughs> all day he has God is one. That's <laughs> when is God turning to. So one is the ultimate. The ultimate unity, Hashem Echad, God is one. What is the number three? If there's one, there's no conflict. You know, take the human organism. Human organism is one. There's no politics in the heart and the liver and the kidney and the, the right hand, the, the conservative and the, and the liberal, the right hand, the left hand, the right leg, the left leg. It's total harmony. There's no ego. It's total harmony. It's one. It's inseparable. If you're Robinson Crusoe, who are you going to fight with? There's no politics. You know, you know you're going to punch yourself. When you have two, you immediately introduce conflict. There's two entities. Two separate entities. Especially if you have two opposite entities, two Jews, three opinions. Then comes number three. Number three represents reconciliation, peace. When you have two opposites, and then you reconcile the two, you blend the two, you mix the two, you discover a unity. That's what the number three symbolizes. Idea of peace. And this captures the essence of what the Torah is about. Jewish law states, and we study this, Maimonides brings this down in, in the end of the laws of Hanukkah, 
What if a person is so poor, so impoverished, he only has enough money, he has to make a choice. Either he's going to spend the last penny that he has to buy some wine to make Kiddush, or he's going to spend it to light a Hanukkah candle. Which one comes first? A Hanukkah candle. Because you're publicizing the miracle. What if a person only has enough, he only has his last penny, he has a choice. Either he's going to buy the oil to light the Hanukkah candle, or he's going to buy the oil to light the Shabbos candle. Which one comes first? Which one takes precedence? Here we said the Hanukkah candle takes precedence even over the cup of wine to publicize the miracle. So here I only have my last penny, Either I'm going to spend it on the oil of Shabbos or on the oil of Hanukkah. Which one comes first? The oil of Shabbos. Why? Because why do you light the Shabbos candle? To bring peace into the home. So people shouldn't trip over themselves. You should enjoy the meal. Add the candlelight. So the whole purpose of the Shabbos candle is to bring peace. And the whole Torah was given just to bring peace. And where do we see that? God practices what he preaches. The ultimate mitzvah is a Jew is ready to sacrifice his life for Hashem. Where do we see, where does God sacrifice? Where do we see God sacrificing? So the Torah says, what if a husband warns his wife, don't seclude yourself with so-and-so? front of two witnesses and then she goes in front of two witnesses and she secludes herself and we're suspicious we don't know what happened maybe she was adulterous maybe not so she becomes forbidden to her husband and then she goes to the temple and she drinks the waters of the Saita they used to write and ink and a parchment the special verses as stated in the Torah and they would erase it and put it into water and she would drink from it if she was innocent she was blessed she had difficulties giving, having childbirth. She would have easy labor. Her children would be beautiful and strong and healthy. If she committed adultery, she would die on the spot. A horrible death, on the spot. And her lover, whoever he was in the world, at that same moment, would also die the same death. The one who committed adultery with a married woman. This was a miraculous phenomenon. It stopped towards the end of the second temple because it only worked, it would only work if the husband was pure. If the husband is having fun and then he takes his wife to the temple, that doesn't work that way. It only works if her husband was 100% pure and moral. If even one time in his life it was immoral, the water stopped working. So they reached a point where the water stopped working because the husbands were not uh, reliable. But this was a miraculous phenomenon. Now, one of the mitzvot in the Torah, mitzvah 437, is that you're not allowed to erase Hashem's name. And here, Hashem commands us to take His name, take these verses, write His name on the parchment, and erase it. And erase the ink into the water, and put some earth to it, and let the woman drink it. So Hashem erases His own name in order to keep the peace, to sustain the peace at home, the peace between husband and wife. 
So we see how primary peace is that the whole Torah was given to create peace. And this is the significance of what this Galilean was telling us. That the whole essence of the Torah is expressed by the number three. It's not just external. It just happens to be three, 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 three. This captures the whole theme and the whole novelty and the whole revolution of the Torah. And without the Torah, this world offers us two choices. Everything is split down the middle. That's the nature of creation. Heaven, earth. Body, soul. Intellect, faith. Right brain, left brain. East, west, material, spiritual. We can't escape this dichotomy. Everything, there's a dichotomy. There's a split. There's the right and there's the left. Life without the Torah offers a person one of two choices. Either I could entirely reject materialism, reject the body, reject the rational, and go on a mountaintop and meditate, become a monk and a nun, renounce materialism, or I totally embrace materialism. Total embrace. It's one or the other. It's heaven or it's earth. It's faith or it's intellect. Science. It's materialism or it's spiritual. Now, the irony is that these two choices are really two sides of the same coin. Because although externally they're 180 degree apart, one extreme and the other extreme, But the truth is, they're both coming from the same premise and the same underlying assumption. It's like the recovering alcoholic and the alcoholic, even though externally they're 180 degrees apart, but the truth is, they have more in common than not. They're really two sides of the same coin. Why? Because both of them, their life evolves around alcohol. One, by entirely rejecting it and running to to AA meetings three times a week. And the other one, by totally surrendering to it and embracing it. So it's really two sides of the same coin. I'll never forget. I studied in Israel in 1981 in Yerushalayim. And Israel is a community that's called Meir Sha'arim. Meir Sha'arim is a group of Jews who have totally renounced the modern world. And you walk into Meir Shardim, it's like walking back in time. You're literally walking into a shtetl 200 years ago. Exactly the way it was, a reenactment, a live reenactment of the shtetl that it was 200 years ago. Complete renouncement, rejection of modernity. And, you know, Friday nights, we would take a walk and visit Meir Shadim. There were a Titian. It was a very happening place. Now, what was so ironic was that Meir Shadim was the biggest tourist attraction. Busloads used to come, especially Friday nights. Busloads. So here, here you had all these blondes, 
<laughs> Swedish blondes coming in the busloads to Meishad. I mean, they would go as close as they could to the Rebbe's dish. But they were fascinated. I mean, this is, where do you get to see, where do you, in the rest of the world, where do you get to see, you can literally see how the shtetl existed 200 years ago. It was so ironic to us. The whole purpose of recreating the shtetl is to keep the world away. And this became the biggest magnet. The world came rushing to see it. It was a spectacle. It was something, a sight to behold, an experience. Because it's really two sides of the same coin. This was the dilemma that faced the Jewish people that began two, three hundred years ago. And up until two, three hundred years ago, a Jew really had no choice. You were either Muslim, either Christian, or you were Jewish. For most Jews, for 99% of Jews, converting wasn't an option. They would rather be burnt alive in the order of the faith, then God forbid, bow down to the cross. It simply wasn't an option. Then the ghetto walls came down. And for the first time in history, a Jew had a choice. The world is open, the world welcomes you. You had a choice. And there were two responses to this choice. One response was, The heck with modernity. We have our traditions. We're Jewish. And we're going to stick to our Jewishness. We're going to raise the ghetto walls. And we're going to wall ourselves up from modernity. The modern day version, we're going to ban the internet. That's one option. Then there was another option. We have to embrace modernity. Tradition has to go. Tradition has to be modified. We can't, we, can't, we can't pretend the world doesn't exist. The world is moving forward. We have to modernize, and we have to get with it, with the program, and we have to cut. So you have two extreme positions. The two choices. But the irony is, that this position, this extreme, and that extreme, the reform and the other extreme, are really two sides of the same coin. Neither of them would like to hear it. But they don't realize how close they are. <laughs> Externally, they have nothing in common. But they have everything in common. Because they share the, whole, the same underlying assumption. What's the underlying assumption? That modernity and Yiddishkeit are in conflict. It's one or the other. It's heaven or it's earth. It's body or it's soul. It's rational or it's faith. It's intellect or it's faith. It's right or it's left. Either you embrace one or you embrace the other. Ten people. And this is where the Barshemtev comes along. Comes along the Barshemtev and says, this is when the Hasidism, the birth of the Hasidic movement, comes along the Balshamtav and says, wait a minute. By the way, the Balshamtav passed away on Shavuot, on the giving of the Torah. Because the Balshamtav revealed the essence of the Torah, the deepest, the crown jewels of the Torah, a taste of the Torah of Mashiach. 
And this gets to the core, the essence of what Torah is all about. The Baal Shem Tov came and said, that let's go back to Sinai. What was the whole revolution of Sinai? Of giving of the Torah. For the first time, the Torah gives us a third choice. Because this whole dichotomy between heaven and earth and this whole split down the middle, right and left, faith and intellect, ego and soul, this is only from our human perspective, from the outside looking in. But if you look at reality from the inside looking at, if you look at reality from God's point of view, from Hashem's point of view, from Hashem's point of view, there's only one reality. The same God who created the soul created the body. The same God who created the intellect created faith. The same God who created heaven created earth. There's only one Hashem, there's only one God. And both of these realities reflect that one God. They're two different expressions ultimately of the same reality. So there is no Dekar. And this, this is what the giving of the Torah accomplished. The giving of the Torah, by giving us the Torah and revealing to us the Torah, God empowered the Jew and offered the Jew a third choice. And the Baal articulated and revealed this choice. That it, the Torah challenges the whole, our whole assumption. The whole assumption that the whole universe operates on, that there is a dichotomy comes along the Torah and changes that whole assumption, challenges that whole assumption, and changes our reality. It's a different reality. There is no split. There is no disconnect. The whole giving of the Torah is bringing heaven down to earth. And this is what we express when we express and affirm the ultimate affirmation of Jewish faith. When we say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Why do we say God's name twice? Hero Israel, Hashem Elokeinu, God has seven names. Why does he say Hashem Elokeinu? He said, Hero Israel, Hashem Echad, God is one. Why does he say Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad? So Hasidus explains because the two names, Hashem and Elokeinu, represent two different expressions of Hashem. Elokeinu, in the beginning of Genesis, Bereish is Baralakim. In the beginning, God created the world, the world of nature. The Torah uses the name Elokim. Elokim, the numerical value of Elokim is 86, the same numerical value as nature, Hatev. Nature, 86. So Elokim is the expression when God conceals himself and God creates the world of nature. The name Hashem, Yud Kei Vav Kei, God's personal name, that we're not allowed to even pronounce. Instead, we pronounce it as Adonai. We don't pronounce it as it's written. We're not allowed to pronounce it as it's written. Because godliness is hidden. The name Hashem, the rabbis say, contains the letters in it of Hoya, Hove, Yi. And it's all in one word. Past, present, future. In other words, this transcends time, transcends space, transcends nature, transcends comprehension. This is God's personal name. So Elohim is the source of the body, the material, nature, the physical, the intellect, 
Hashem is the source of the soul. Faith. So what we're saying in the Shema is Hashem Melokeinu. These two realities, which come from the two different names of Hashem, Hashem and Elohim, the soul and the body, heaven and earth, faith and intellect, ego and soul, ultimately, Hashem Echad. They all come, they all come from one truth, one reality. There's only one reality. And that's the reality of Hashem. And the same Hashem expresses Himself in the body, in math, science, and physics. And the same Hashem expresses Himself in the soul, ultimately one reality and that's a Jew's mission in this world is to reveal to reveal the unity the unity of Hashem to reveal that there is no split there is no dichotomy the whole giving of the Torah was Hashem came down the mountain to merge heaven and earth that's the, that's the essence of the giving of the Torah that's, that was the revolution of the giving of the Torah and with the giving of the Torah, every Jew, even the simplest Jew, is empowered to accomplish something that even Avraham could not accomplish, or Isaac, or Yaakov. And that is, when the simplest Jew takes a physical object and does a mitzvah with it, you have the power. The giving of the Torah, Mount Sinai, empowered the Jew to be able to take this physical object and to bring heaven down to earth to imbue this physical object with holiness. It makes no sense. Someone were to tell you that a concept, 2 plus 2 is 4, is connected somehow to this table. Concepts transcend tables, objects, time, space. 2 plus 2 is 4, true. It's true in France. It's true in New York. Okay, maybe in communist Russia it wasn't true, but, <laughs> but in, in North Korea maybe, not be true. maybe it's not true, but, but, but anywhere else, 2 plus 2 is 4 is a, is a concept. It transcends time and space. You can't bottle concepts and connect it to physical objects. How much more so, how can you, take, how can you say that godliness, which transcends time and space, is somehow connected to this leather hide? You write a pair of tefillin on the leather hide of an animal and, you, and the, the, the Jew puts it on, the Jewish male puts it on, it becomes holy. You write a mezuzah, the mezuzah becomes holy. It's not just symbolic. It's actually holy. You're not allowed to take it into a bathroom. You have to treat it with respect. How could something physical, how could you imbue something physical with holiness, with godliness? It makes no sense. But this is the revolution of Mount Sinai. This is the revolution of the Torah. At Mount Sinai, God empowered us, each and every one of us, the simplest Jew, equal to the greatest Jew. It's not within the human capacity. No human being, no matter how great they are. Moses himself would not have that power. It's only because Hashem, God himself, gave us this power at Mount Sinai, empowered us to bring heaven down to earth, to bring peace, to bring harmony, to harmonize the material and the spirit. And this is the general theme of Yiddishkeit. Yiddishkeit is not about escapism. It's not about running off the mountain, going to the mountaintop and escaping. To fast is very easy, not to eat. The challenge is to eat, but eat in a kosher way, in a disciplined way. Judaism doesn't denigrate beauty and, on the contrary. But there's a concept of modesty. The answer is not to run away and to hide and to put veils and 
but to deal with it, to elevate it, to take beauty, sexuality, and elevate it. Marriage is called kiddushin, holiness. When you make kiddush, it's called kiddush. Usually we don't associate wine, women, with holiness. But in Judaism, this is holy. Kiddush. Kiddush. Because this gets to the essence of what Judaism is about. It's not escapism. As a matter of fact, in Jewish law, the high priest, the holiest Jew, on the holiest day of the year in Yom Kippur, is not allowed to enter into the holy of holies, the holiest spot, unless he's a married man. It's not a compromise to human weakness. This is the essence of what Judaism is about. It's about dealing with reality, bringing heaven down to earth, changing and transforming the world and turning it into a Torah world, revealing its true nature, its true core, its true essence. This is the Torah way. This is the third way. It's not about running away. It's not about hiding. It's not about escapism. And the Torah has so much confidence in us that we are about to receive a Torah of 5,772 here in the lower hemisphere, in the United States. And although the Torah was given in the, in the higher, in the upper hemisphere, the Torah wasn't even given in the lower hemisphere. But yet, it's only here you see the ultimate confidence, how much confidence Hashem has in the material in his material that he's selling, it's called the Torah, and how much confidence he has in his audience, and that's us. See, see, some religions, they don't have confidence. They don't have confidence in the audience, and they don't have confidence in the material. And that's why they're afraid of modernity. Their response is, we've got to run and hide. We can't deal with it. We have to ban. We have to ban this and ban that. We have to cover up, cover up the women and we have to smash the radios. And we, can't, we, can't, we can't deal with it. So we have no confidence in the audience and no confidence in the material. But Hashem today created such a world which is an open marketplace. It's a free marketplace. It's an open marketplace. He's not imposing it upon us. He's not forcing us. It's a free world. It's a free country. You're an American. And you have to compete with everything that's out there. Every ism that's out there. Every mishagaz. Every, no matter how idiotic, no matter how... It's a free country. And the Torah has to compete with everything that's out there. It's a marketplace. You can't force anyone to buy it. But Hashem has so much confidence in us. And He has confidence in the material. That He says, even in this environment, which is a free market. I'm confident that you'll have the wisdom that like oil it will rise to the top. Because this is emes, it's truth, it resonates, it's the most coherent message, it's the most genuine message, and it's emes. And Hashem says, I have confidence. I'm not afraid. Put me in this environment, I'm not afraid. I created this environment. This is a free marketplace. And the Torah truth has to compete with every lie that's out there and every craziness that's out there and all the insanity. And it's a free country. And Hashem says, I'm confident. You don't have to force anyone. You don't have to impose anyone. I'm confident that at the end of the day, Torah will prevail. Truth will prevail. 
And people will willingly choose to do the right thing. No one is forcing anyone. But people will have the wisdom to distinguish between junk and reality, between light and dark, truth and falsehood, emes. And that's why the giving of the Torah this year is perhaps more powerful than any other time. Because as we plunge and we descend (laughs) into the the abyss, (laughs) spiritually speaking, morally speaking, Shem says, don't worry. Truth will prevail. And truth will win. And, And he's giving us the Torah again. Like the very first time. That's how much confidence he has. And that's why we find you know, we're going to stay up. Jewish customs to stay up all night on Shavuos. And the reason we stay up all night is because when Hashem gave to give, came to give the Torah, He found the Jewish people all fast asleep. This is an age-old tradition. It's not only when rabbis speak that people fall asleep. <laughs> the ultimate sermon, <laughs> the, ultimate, the first time the Torah was given, everyone was already fast asleep. It's an age-old tradition. Historical precedent. And it hasn't stopped since. (laughs) Now, the question is, it makes no sense. What do you mean the Jewish people fell asleep? One of the reasons we count the Omer is because when when, uh, Moshe told the Jewish people you're leaving Egypt, he told them, you're leaving Egypt and you're going to rendezvous with God in the mountain. Hashem is going to give you the Torah. The Jewish people couldn't wait. So they were counting. One day, two days, three days. They couldn't wait to receive the Torah. So could you imagine the night before they were, they were, they were going to receive a Torah, they fell asleep? Imagine you're going on a trip of a lifetime. You've saved up all your life and finally you and your spouse are going on a trip of a lifetime around the world. You're cruising around the world. You're sailing. You wouldn't be able to sleep three days before. You wouldn't notice how tired you are. You wouldn't notice how hungry you are. You're adrenaline. You're so excited. You're, you're sitting at the edge of it. How could the Jewish people fall asleep the night before the giving of the Torah? I mean, they were waiting for this moment. They were counting down. They couldn't wait, anticipating, yearning. And the measure says it was a very peaceful sleep. It was a deep sleep. It wasn't a restless sleep. It was a very restful sleep. So much so that no, no mosquitoes bothered them. It was so peaceful. It was such a deep sleep, calm, restful sleep. How could the Jewish people sleep? And the answer is, they deliberately went to sleep. Because when a person is in a conscious state, your mind is limited. You're in a very limited, you're operating on a very limited level. In sleep, you can access very deep levels of the soul. It's like going into a trance. When you deep sleep, it's very restful. And you enter like into a meditative state. And there were many times rabbis, when they were learning a very difficult piece of Talmud and the Torah is something they couldn't understand, couldn't comprehend, because as long as their mind was trapped, straightjacketed, limited in their, to their conscious state, it, they just couldn't, couldn't grasp the idea. But when they went to sleep, suddenly they were free, their mind was free, and they were able to access deeper levels of the mind, deeper levels of understanding, and suddenly they had breakthroughs and insights, and they were able to understand ideas which they couldn't grasp before. And that's the reason why the Jewish people went to sleep. They went to sleep deliberately in order to prepare for the giving of the Torah. They wanted to enter into a trance state. 
to a meditative state. Like it says, the prophet, before the prophet would, would receive prophecy, he would enter into a meditative state, like, like a trance. And that's why it was a very deep sleep. It was a very profoundly restful and deep, and so much so it affected their surroundings. No mosquitoes bothered them. It was a very holy sleep. Sounds like a good thing. Why do we have to suffer till today and we have to be up all night? Millions of Jews all over the world don't sleep a wing. They're going to be up all night learning Torah. And the answer is because this went against the whole theme of the giving of the Torah. The whole theme of the giving of the Torah was that heaven coming down to earth, merging heaven and earth, coming down to the mountain. And here the Jewish people went spiritual. They became spiritual. They entered into deep meditation. Hashem says, the giving of the Torah is not about becoming spiritual or entering into deep meditation. The giving of the Torah is about transcending, not only transcending the material, the physical, but even transcending the spiritual. Not only transcending the finite, but even transcending the infinite. Touching the core and essence of Hashem. Anoichi, I who am I? Hashem Elokecha. Three words. Anoichi Hashem Elokecha. There is Hashem which represents the infinite, the spiritual, the soul. There is Elokecha which represents the material, the physical. And then there is Anoichi, I who am I, who contains both and combines both and combines and could, could, could uh, square the circle. Because Hashem is undefined and is neither and is both. It's neither heaven or earth. This whole dichotomy between heaven and earth is really external and superficial. When you come to the core, the essence, it melts away. All these distinctions, there is no heaven, there is no earth, there is no up, there is no down, there is no material, there is no spiritual, there is no soul, there is no body. There's only one reality. is Hashem Echad. That's what your religion and spirituality and meditation gets you to, to heaven. But in heaven, they don't know what God looks like. <laughs> God is not spiritual. Just like God is not physical, God is not spiritual. Just like you can't grasp God with your fingers and your hands, you can't grasp God through meditation and spirituality and religion and music. And God's essence, God's core is undefined. I, who am I? This was a revelation which comes from, from Hashem. And combines Hashem Elokech. So you're going spiritual on me? You're going into a deep meditative trance? You missed the whole point of what the giving of the Torah is about. So how do we fix it? By being up. By being aware and conscious. And filling our minds. Not emptying our minds. Filling our minds with Torah. And bringing the Torah down to earth. Merging heaven and earth. Because it's neither heaven, it's neither earth. It's much deeper than heaven and much deeper than earth it's the essence of Hashem himself that has the ability to combine heaven and earth to fill our consciousness with holiness to fill the physical world with holiness and that explains why Medrash says that when God and they heard God's voice and although you can't get two Jews to agree on anything but this is one thing that three million men, women and children all agreed on is that they heard God's voice and they transmitted this tradition to their children and their children to their children. And you can't make up anything like this. You know, two Jews, three opinions. This was a collective experience that it was so certain they heard God's voice. Three million men, women, and children were certain. There was no question, no argument, no discussion. Here the Jews argue about everything 
in the desert. But this was no argument. They heard, they all experienced it. And, and we transmitted it from generation to generation. And you go into any Torah in the world, a Torah in Yemen, or a Torah in Bukhara, communities that were cut off for 3,000 years, the Torah is the exact same down to the very last letter. This is emes, this is reality. This is not someone's figment of an imagination. This is, we experience, we saw, not we have to have faith. Moses told us that God spoke to him. We, we didn't only Moses, though. we heard, we all saw and heard, every one of us, and all the souls stood at Sinai. So when God spoke at Sinai, the Medrash says there was no echo. The voice of Hashem, there was no echo. The question is, God doesn't perform miracles. God is not a magician. He's not trying to impress us. God doesn't perform miracles unless it's necessary. What's the significance of the fact there was no echo? And if there would be an echo, <laughs> what? I mean, we want our money back. There was an echo. What difference? Here's an echo. There's no echo. Voices have echoes. So if God spoke and, and the Jewish people heard it as a voice, okay, it should have been an echo. Why shouldn't there be an echo? Okay, so it was a miracle. There should have been, and here there wasn't. But, but who cares? Why would God make such a miracle? And most importantly, who cares? Why is that relevant to our life? Torah is not just telling us stories. Torah is a guide, a guide for life. It's trying to teach us something. What's the Torah trying to tell us? And the answer is, why is there an echo? Because it bounces back. There's resistance. Right? When they build acoustics, they, they build material that absorbs the voice. That shouldn't be... And that's natural. There's a voice, there's an echo. There's a, a voice that bounces off. So the Torah is telling us, when God spoke, there was no echo. What do you mean? Meaning there was no resistance. The voice penetrated through every corner of the world. There was no resistance. There wasn't a single aspect of this world that resisted the voice of Hashem. The voice of Hashem permeated the physical reality. So it wasn't a miracle God was showing off or a magical miracle. This was part and parcel of the essence of what Mount Sinai was all about. Mount Sinai comes to show there is no conflict. There is no resistance between material and spiritual, heaven and earth. There's only one reality and everything in this world is just expression of that ultimate reality in our mission and through the Torah we have the ability God empowered us to reveal that underlying unity that peace that harmony that underlying unity to reveal that deeper unity and showing that even though it appears to be conflict even though it appears to be two entities and nevertheless it's one like in marriage it appears to be two separate entities two opposite entities man and woman and yet in marriage they you reveal a deeper unity, you reveal how they're really one and inseparable. This is what peace means. This is the idea of number three. This is the whole theme of the giving of the Torah. That's why there was no echo, and that's the message to us, that there's no conflict, there's no resistance for a Jew to lead a Jewish life. It doesn't mean you have to escape, and you have to ban and banish, and hide, and run and hide, and you can't deal with modernity. You have to challenge the whole assumption of the so-called modern world, that there is a conflict. There is no conflict. There can't be any conflict, because when God gave the Torah, there was no resistance. Every part of, part of this world is all part of that unity. And our mission is to reveal it, here and now, in the year 5,772, here in the lower hemisphere, in this free marketplace, which appears to be the antithesis of godliness, where every 
idealism and every, every ism has to compete with the truth and yet you have to reveal that the truth is this world is really a godly world and this world could be transformed into a Torah world, into a moral world, into a good world, a kind world. And that's why we find very interesting halacha. The halacha state is an argument in Rabbi Lezer and Rabbi Yeshua how a Jew is supposed to celebrate the holidays. Pesach, Sukkot. So Rabbi Yeshua holds that you have to divide it. Half of the holiday has to be dedicated to Hashem. We add prayers, we study Torah, we read the Torah. And half of the holiday has to be divided to yourself. You have to eat well, you have to drink well, and you have to feast and celebrate. So there's a division. A holiday is a time when you have to eat and drink, and it's a time to emphasize, be more spiritual, the combination. Rabbi Eleazar says, you have a choice. I can choose to dedicate the entire holiday to Hashem, or I can choose to, to celebrate by physically eating. Yet the Talmud says that this argument is only in relation to the holiday of Pesach and Sukkot. However, when it comes to the holiday of Shavuot, there is no argument. Everyone agrees, even Rabbi Lezer agrees, that you must celebrate, you must eat. You have to eat your blintzes and eat your cheesecake. You have to eat. Very puzzling, very strange. Out of all the three holidays, if there's one holiday which makes sense, that you can celebrate the holiday by dedicating it to God, it would be the holiday of Shavuot. Because the holiday of Shavuot represents a spiritual event, a spiritual experience. We stood at Sinai and God spoke to us. We saw God face to face. All the other holidays commemorate something, not only something spiritual, but also something physical. We were freed from Egypt. We were slaves. Even a single servant couldn't escape. And here the Iron Curtain came down. We left. So it wasn't just a spiritual liberation. It was also a physical liberation. The holiday of Sukkot, we're commemorating Hashem gave us shelter. Sheltered us in the desert, in the hot desert. He sheltered us. So it's not just a spiritual, miraculous event. It's also a physical event. So there would make sense that you have to say, you know, on the holiday of Pesach, Sukkot is there. You have to express your joy also by physically eating and drinking. But the holiday of Shavuos, which commemorates a purely spiritual event, there you can celebrate the holiday by, 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 by studying Torah. And yet we say just the opposite. The holiday of Sukkot and the holiday of Pesach, says you can spend all day learning. But the holiday of Shavuot, you must eat. Why? Because again, this gets to the core, the crux of what Shavuot is all about. It's not about spirituality. It's about merging heaven and earth, bringing heaven down to earth. It's about revealing that inner unity, the third option, the core, the essence. So if you don't bring it down into eating, if, it doesn't, if it's not expressed in the physical, then you miss the whole point. Because it's not just about the mountain, it's about coming down the mountain. What do you think the first thing, what do you think the first thing that happened when the Jews came down the mountain? Came away from the mountain? What was the first question? What's for Kiddush? What are we eating? What are we going to eat? And they had a problem. Because all the, the pots were not kosher. That, that was, and they couldn't, you know, they couldn't do anything about it. And, so they had to eat milchik. They couldn't use their pots. 
because it was not kosher. So they had, all they can eat was milk. That's the reason we eat dairy. One of the reasons we eat dairy, I'm, I'm sure, is because they couldn't eat meat. So that was the first question. Here you had this unbelievable experience, and here you're busy with food. But that's the whole point. It's, when, it's coming down the mountain. Did the Torah permeate you? Did it transform you? Did it fill your life, your daily life, your ordinary mundane life, the eating and the drinking? It's not about meditating and love. It's eating kosher. Are you eating that kosher pastrami sandwich? <laughs> it's about the physical. Bringing holiness into this world. Elevating this world. Transforming this world. This is the whole essence. Mm-hmm.